Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and this is a continuation of the prior episode where I have back with me Dr. Steve Beaudry and Dr. Dr. Tina Tram, and we're going through an oral board stem. Now, we, for time reasons, we actually stopped after Dr. Beaudry took us through a not-so-good way to go through the stem, uh, and then we did some critique of his uh, performance, and now uh, we're going to have Dr. Tina Tran go through and do a more, quote-unquote, correct uh, way to go through it. So I want you to make sure that if you didn't listen to the prior episode, you're going to want to start there because this is meant to follow that one. Uh, and we will now jump in. I will post the stem itself uh, on the show notes. That's at acrac.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Uh, so you can get the access to those. You can look at them as you go through. And, uh, again, start with part one. This is part two. All right. Uh, so, uh, Steve and Tina, welcome back. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, and, Tina, we are going to go through the stem with you. I think I'll read the stem one more time just in case anyone uh, wants to hear it, and then we'll jump in. So, uh, the stem is this. A 58-year-old, 55-kilogram woman is scheduled for an exploratory laparotomy for ovarian cancer. She smoked two to two and a half packs per day until two years ago. She stopped because of increasing dyspnea and exercise intolerance. She uses nasal oxygen for night sleeping and cannot walk more than 30 steps without severe shortness of breath. Her medications include albuterol and nipotropium inhalers. She has moderate ascites. Her blood pressure is 130 over 85. Her pulse is 104. Her respiratory rate is 18. Her temperature is 37.4 degrees Celsius. Her hemoglobin is 14.8 grams per deciliter. Her ABG on room air is 7.36 with a CO2 of 46 and an O2 of 54. All right, listeners are going to laugh because I've just had the tables turned on me. Unbeknownst to me, Dr. Tran and Dr. Beaudry decided that I was going to have to receive the uh, oral board exam, and Dr. Tran is going to be the examiner. Uh, of course, since I've already put them through this, it's hard for me to refuse, so uh, I will do my best to give you um, the quote-unquote correct answer here. Dr. Tran is going to take me through. All right. Hey, Dr. Walpole, good morning. Welcome to your oral boards. Thank you. How do you interpret her ABGs? So with a pH of 7.36, that's very close to normal. She has an, a low PaO2 representing hypoxemia, and her PaCO2 of 46 is elevated, uh, which suggests to me that she has a respiratory acidosis, but with metabolic compensation. Now, I don't have a bicarbonate value, but if I did, I would imagine it would be elevated representing uh, compensation. What is the significance of hypercarbia to anesthetic management? There are several ways in which hypercarbia can affect uh, how a patient behaves or how a patient's uh, physiology uh, goes intraoperatively. Uh, hypercarbia can cause hypertension. It can also interfere with the respiratory drive to breathe. It can cause patients to be agitated, to move when maybe they wouldn't move anyway, or to start breathing if they have inadequate uh, neuromuscular blockade on board. If the respiratory acid, if the CO2 gets high enough, causing a significant acidosis, there's also concern for arrhythmias uh, and for pulmonary vasoconstriction. Why is she not acidotic? As I mentioned, I believe that this patient has a chronic respiratory acidosis, mostly uh, due to her COPD, most likely, and therefore she has had time for her kidneys to retain bicarbonate, which creates a metabolic alkalosis, which is a compensation for her respiratory acidosis and will bring her pH not all the way, but close back to normal. 
Should you receive nasal oxygen continuously rather than just for night sleeping? I would defer to her primary pulmonologist or her primary care doctor in regards to that question. However, it is my understanding that for patients with chronic hypoxemia, uh, whether it's from COPD or any other cause, there is a mortality benefit to uh, continuous oxygen. Is she hypoxic? Yes, this patient is hypoxic. At least she was, as represented by her room air ABG that was done with a PaO2 of 54. That represents uh, a hypoxic PaO2. What, what is her oxygen saturation? We weren't given an oxygen saturation on that gas. However, we can approximate it from the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve, which allows us to map a PaO2 to a saturation. Now, it varies a little bit based on a variety of factors, such as acidosis, temperature, uh, 2,3 BPG. But in general, a PaO2 of 54 would represent an oxygen saturation somewhere between 85 and 90%. Uh, presume her last pulmonary function tests or PFTs were done six months ago. Should new PFTs be considered? In general, I would not, and for this patient, I would not order new pulmonary function tests because I don't believe it would change my management. Are there any guidelines to help us determine when these tests should be ordered? There may be some societal guidelines specifically related to patients such as this and whether to repeat pulmonary function tests, but I do not know uh, exactly what they say or if they exist. I would certainly look into that prior to um, making a decision with this patient. You said uh, new PFTs would not change your management. Uh, What would information from the old PFTs tell you? If she had severe uh, pulmonary dysfunction on those Uh, pulmonary function tests, I would anticipate that she was at high risk for post-operative pulmonary complications. It might make me more likely to keep her intubated after the case and make sure we optimized everything in the ICU before attempting to extubate her. I would certainly, in my preoperative discussion with the patient and the family, make sure they were aware of the increased risk for complications and the very real potential for remaining intubated post-operatively. Would you get an EKG? I would want an EKG on this patient, severe COPD, uh, as well as a lack of any real exercise tolerance, makes me concerned, uh, as well as her uh, long-term cigarette use makes me concerned for possible concomitant uh, cardiac disease in this patient. So I would want, at the very least, a baseline EKG. Would you uh, request an echocardiogram or a stress test? I would want to use the AHA uh, algorithm to decide whether this patient uh, needed any further cardiac testing. Uh, That would involve first looking at her exercise tolerance, which is poor, and so I would then need to look at both the risk of the surgery and the other risk factors that she had. I don't have all that information, such as whether she has diabetes and things like that, that would also contribute. However, given that this is a fairly urgent case because of cancer, and given that In order to, if we got an echo which showed cardiac dysfunction or a stress test which showed dysfunction, we would then need to pursue a catheterization, maybe stenting, which even with bare metal stents would put off her um, ovarian cancer surgery for at least six weeks. Uh, That's a a long time to wait when you have cancer that needs to be taken out. So I would discuss it with the surgeon and with the patient. If they both understood the risks and wanted to move forward, what I would do is treat this patient as if she had cardiac disease, but proceed with the surgery. What specific information from an echocardiogram do you seek that is not evidently evident from her history and her ABG? As I said, I would be 
unlikely to send this patient for an echo given that I don't think it would change my management. However, if I did get an echocardiogram on this patient, uh, what I would be looking for would be some sign uh, of cardiac dysfunction, whether she has had an MI in the past and has some wall motion abnormalities, whether she has reduced ejection fraction, diastolic dysfunction, whether she has valvular abnormalities such as aortic stenosis, though there's no reason to suspect that in this particular patient. Uh, The most likely thing that she has would be coronary artery disease, which unless she's already had uh, a myocardial ischemic event such as a myocardial infarction may not be evident on just an echo. We would have to do a stress echo, and what we would see there would be the effect of stress on her myocardial function. And again, if we saw that, the next step would be to take her to cath to potentially place stents, but I think that with a cancer surgery that needs to go fairly urgently, we'd be unlikely to take the time to do that. Why does the patient have ascites? I would imagine the most likely cause of her ascites is related to her ovarian cancer. Uh, however, there are other potential causes for ascites. It is possible that she may have a, an infection in the abdomen, um, for example. It's also possible that it may be due to severe cardiac disease, though uh, we don't have that information. Does ascites alter your plan for management? It wouldn't alter my plan for my anesthetic management, though I would want to discuss with the surgeon his or her plans as to whether they plan to drain that ascites in the beginning part of the case, uh, because if there were a large volume of ascites and it were going to be all drained at once, that could affect the patient's hemodynamics. So should the ascites be drained preoperatively? I would discuss that with the surgeon. In general, uh, I believe the surgeon would consider draining that ascites in the operating room, and if that were the case, uh, then we could proceed. If the surgeon wanted to have that drained via paracentesis preoperatively, that would be fine, and we could then observe the effect on the hemodynamics uh, in a setting prior to going to surgery. Would you give her pre Would you give her albumin preoperatively? If we were going to drain her ascites, I would definitely replace uh, the fluid that was drained with 25% albumin uh, per protocol. However, uh, if we were not going to drain it, I would not preemptively give albumin. I would certainly have it present and ready in the operating room uh, to use if a large volume of ascites was drained by the surgeon. What medications would you continue or discontinue preoperatively? The patient is on uh, albuterol and ipratropium inhalers, and I would certainly want to discuss with her whether she takes them regularly. I imagine that she does, given the severity of her COPD. I would want her to continue taking them, and I would want her to take them preoperatively. If she were to be extremely anxious, would you provide sedation? I would be very cautious with sedation in this patient, given uh, the fact that with severe COPD and preoperative hypoxemia, she's going to be at high risk for desaturation if she were to, for example, go apneic from a dose of fentanyl or even Versed. If she were extremely anxious, I would first talk to the patient. I would try to calm her down, uh, help her understand what was happening, and answer any questions that she had to try to alleviate her anxiety. If absolutely necessary, I would consider uh, if she were very, very anxious and that was causing her to, for example be tachycardic and tachypnic, I would consider a small dose of something like midazolam uh, in this patient. Dr. Walpa, is a central venous catheter necessary for this case? I would not place a central venous catheter unless I was unable to get adequate peripheral access. And what will be adequate peripheral access for you? I would want at least two large bore peripheral IVs, by which I would mean at least an 18-gauge peripheral IV. Uh, What if you got into uh, massive bleeding or would you expect that to happen during this case? Certainly, massive bleeding is a possibility in any uh, major abdominal surgery, and with cancer can be more of a risk. 
I would feel comfortable resuscitating through peripheral IVs. The short nature of that catheter actually makes it uh, easier to give rapid infusion through it as opposed to the long central catheter. What are the risks of a central venous, uh, central venous line placement? There are several risks of placing a central venous catheter. There's the risk of inducing, introducing infection from the skin into the large veins. There's the risk of pneumothorax if you're placing it in the neck. There's the risk of damaging other important vasculars, such as the carotid artery. There is, of course, also the risk of uh, bleeding if you were to perforate the large veins in the area, uh, which could lead to hypovolemic shock or even to death. Would you place an arterial catheter? Yes, I would place an arterial catheter. Why is that? This patient is at high risk for uh, a variety of things during this case. She has severe COPD. I would want to send blood gases throughout the case, so I would need it for access to send labs. She also, while I don't know that she has cardiac disease, there is certainly the potential given her long smoking history and her severe COPD. So I, as I said, would assume and would treat her as if she had cardiac disease. Therefore, I would want to keep a very close eye on her blood pressure from second to second and make sure she did not get hypotensive uh, during the case. So would you place the arterial line while she was still awake or after she was asleep? I would not place the arterial catheter while awake, especially in a patient who may already be extremely anxious. Uh, I would be more concerned at the potential swings in blood pressure that could happen during the drainage of ascites, as we discussed earlier, and during the case. I would do as much of a stable intubation as I could in this patient uh, to make sure that she didn't get extremely hypotensive during the case. The one caveat is if I could not get accurate blood pressures via the cuff, if the cuff was struggling to get a blood pressure in this patient uh, preoperatively, then I would place the A-line uh, while she was still awake. How would you position the patient for induction? I would want this patient, uh, as always, to be uh, with her position optimized. Assuming that she did not have a particularly difficult-looking airway, I would still assume that she would desaturate fairly quickly, given that she's uh, starting with fairly poor oxygenation. And so I would want to maximize my chances of success with a quick intubation. I would therefore have her on a slight ramp. I would have her in sniffing position. I would make sure that her sternal notch is lined up with her external auditory meatus. So how would you induce anesthesia? I would uh, do a rapid sequence intubation in this patient because of my concern with her ascites that she would uh, be at high risk for uh, aspiration. So I would use ketamine in this patient because of her severe COPD and risk for bronchospasm. Ketamine is a bronchodilator. I would use ketamine. Why not propofol? Propofol would be an option, but I would prefer ketamine. The reason is that propofol is not a bronchodilator, at least not to the same extent as ketamine, and propofol causes or can cause severe hypotension. Again, because of my concern with possible cardiac disease in this patient, I would prefer a medication such as ketamine that would be more hemodynamically stable. So if you're concerned about her hemodynamics, why not use Etomidate? Atomidate is also a very hemodynamically stable induction agent. However, it causes adrenal suppression. And in this patient who is going to be at high risk for pulmonary infections, given her severe COPD, I would rather not interfere with her adrenal axis. How will you attenuate her tracheal bronchial response to intubation? I would be very concerned with the risk for bronchospasm in this patient, and so I would want to give her some IV lidocaine in the uh, pre-induction uh, phase. I would also give her some fentanyl uh, IV, and then I would make sure that I gave ketamine, as I said, which is a bronchodilator, and I would make sure that she was as deep as, as possible so that she would be less likely to have bronchospastic airways. How would if you I, know if she's deep enough? 
It's a great question. If I had a BIS monitor, I could certainly use that. But even in the absence of a BIS monitor, I would know that a relatively large dose of ketamine would be likely along, especially when combined with some fentanyl uh, and lidocaine IV to prevent bronchospasm to the greatest extent possible. If I had access to uh, lidocaine that I could spray on the cords, I would also consider that. Uh, so immediately after induction and tracheal intubation, the peak inspiratory pressure increases to 50 centimeters of water. What's your differential diagnosis? The most likely uh, diagnosis in this patient is bronchospasm. However, there are other possibilities. The tube could be kinked. I could have put it in the right or left main stem bronchus. She could have a pneumothorax. She could have a pulmonary embolus. She could be having an MI causing some pulmonary edema. All of these would be on my differential. So what would you do about it? I would first listen, uh, to, I would examine the patient, so I would listen to both lungs. I would uh, listen to see what I could hear in terms of wheezing or absence of breath sounds. I would examine the tube to see if it was kinked. I would then make sure the machine didn't have any faults, that it was still hooked up. I would switch the patient to the bag and try to hand ventilate to assess compliance. I would make sure that my I was on 100% oxygen and that I had anesthesia going. Uh, I would turn up the anesthetic, assuming that the patient was not hypotensive, to try to uh, attenuate bronchospasm. If How could you distinguish between bronchospasm and endobronchial intubation? So again, an exam of the patient listening to the lung fields would help. An endobronchial intubation should result in unilateral lung sounds and should not result in wheezing, where bi- uh, bronchospasm should result in bilateral wheezing. And how would you know if she had a pneumothorax or not? A pneumothorax would also result in unilateral lung sounds, though that can be confused with endobronchial intubation. With a pneumothorax, I would expect to see more hemodynamic instability, such as hypotension. I could easily rule out endobronchial intubation by pulling by looking at how deep the tube was and pulling it back. There's only about an 8 to 10 centimeter distance, maybe 12 at the most, from the mouth to the cords. And so if my tube was 20, 22 centimeters, I could safely pull it back to make sure that to rule out a, an endobronchial intubation. So on exam of the patient, you do hear bilateral wheezing present. How would you manage it? Uh, all wheezing is not necessarily bronchospasm. I would still, uh, it is still possible the patient had pulmonary edema. However, in this patient with known severe COPD, uh, I, and assuming that my, the rest of my vital signs were fine, I would look at my EKG tracing to make sure there were no, for example, new ST changes. But assuming there were not, I would assume that this was bronchospasm. I would give the patient albuterol through the circuit. If uh, I would also consider giving low-dose epinephrine, uh, IV, assuming she was not already uh, severely tachycardic or hypertensive, uh, and I would deepen the anesthetic. Hypotensive with decreased end tidal CO2. How would that change your management? If the patient was hypotensive with decreased end tidal CO2, I would be concerned about a possible pulmonary embolus. This patient has cancer and therefore is at high risk for a PE. Uh, and a PE would cause those signs. I would rule out the other things that I mentioned on my differential, but if she remained hypoxemic uh, with low uh, end tidal CO2 and hypotension, uh, I would discuss with the surgeon uh, whether we could, uh, whether it was worthwhile to stop the case or to finish quickly and um, take the patient for a CT scan to rule out pulmonary embolus. So let me ask, is a nitrous narcotic-based uh, anesthetic a good choice for her? 
I would not choose a nitrous narcotic technique for this patient. She has severe COPD, so is already at high risk for remaining intubated and for post-op respiratory complications. Giving her a lot of narcotic would make it very difficult to extubate her or to wake her up post-operatively. And given that she's having an abdominal surgery, uh, I would be concerned that the nitrous oxide would lead to abdominal distension and potentially increase risk for post-operative nausea and vomiting. So what would be your inhalational agent of choice? In general, I would like to use sevoflurane in this case. Isoflurane would also be an option, uh, but I would uh, prefer sevoflurane in case she got hypotensive. It would be easier to adjust. Isn't desflurane faster acting? Desflurane is faster acting because it is less soluble. However, especially to a patient who is waking up at the end of a case, if there was residual desflurane, it can be very irritating to the airways, and I would be concerned about potential increased risk for bronchospasm. What will you use for muscle relaxation? I would use uh, vecuronium in this patient for uh, muscle relaxation. And why vecuronium? I could use rocuronium or vecuronium. I would want something that is relatively short-acting and that is easy to reverse uh, and that does not cause histamine release, which would be a concern for uh, higher risk for bronchospasm in this patient. So I would stay away, for example, from atricurium uh, or from pancuronium. Would ventilation settings of the following be appropriate? Tidal volume of 550, respiratory rate of 16, and an ITE ratio of 1 to 1. I do not think these are appropriate ventilatory settings for this patient. Why not? First of all, I don't have her height, so I cannot calculate an ideal body weight, but it would be unusual for a woman to be tall enough for 550 mLs to be an appropriate tidal volume. I would also imagine that her lungs would be somewhat fragile given her severe COPD, and I would want to use low tidal volume ventilation. When you say low tidal volume, what would... What's low tidal volume? I would shoot for 6 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight in this patient. And why is that? That is uh, the tidal volume that we would use in any patient at risk for uh, lung injury or certainly a patient with known ARDS or lung injury and therefore probably a more protective lung ventilatory strategy. I would also be concerned about an IDE ratio of 1 to 1 in a patient with severe COPD, that this would not give her adequate expiratory time to fully exhale, and that she would therefore be at risk for developing dynamic hyperinflation and therefore reduce venous return as pressure in the thorax built up. So 45 minutes into the case, the ABG uh, shows the following. A PaO2 of 202 on an FiO2 of 1, a PaCO2 of 52, and a pH of 7.41. Interpret that, please. So this patient has a normal pH at 7.41. She has a respiratory acidosis uh, with a CO2 of 52. Again, she continues to have her chronic renal um, metabolic alkalosis for compensation. Normally, we would not think of that compensation uh, taking her above 7.41, but she's very close to 7.4. She is also... Uh, While she is hyperoxic at a PaO2 of 202, she has an enormous AA gradient because she's on 100% oxygen. If she had normal, healthy lungs, I would expect her PaO2 to be somewhere around 550 to 600. So she is... uh, So would you make any changes? I would reduce the oxygen. I wouldn't want to continue to expose her to the hyperoxia with a PaO2 of 202, and it's not necessary. So I would reduce her FiO2. Other than that, uh, I would not... Uh, make changes to the vent unless I was still ventilating her at a at a tidal volume of 550. So you would want her CO2 to be closer to her baseline? So the baseline CO2 that we have from her preoperative um, ABG is 46. Uh, 
at 52 and with a normal pH, I'm okay with that. Uh, I don't think that we need to make changes uh, as long as her pH is normal. So what if later in the case, another ABG shows a pH CO2 of 65 and she has bilateral wheezing? The bilateral wheezing would make me concerned for ongoing or recurrent bronchospasm, and a PaO2 of a PaCO2 of 65 is now significantly above her baseline, and I would imagine that would it would also be leading to an acidosis uh, if we had a pH. Therefore, I would treat the bronchospasm again. I, of course, would rule out all of the other things we discussed on a differential of wheezing, but if it were indeed bronchospasm, I would give uh, albuterol again, perhaps some epinephrine, perhaps some magnesium, and I would... Uh, increase her uh, respiratory rate uh, as long as I still had adequate uh, time for her to exhale. Are your extubation criteria for this patient different than a patient who didn't have all of her comorbidities? My extubation criteria are not different, though I think it would be more difficult for her to meet them. So I would want her to be able to maintain her oxygenation and ventilation to maintain a good tidal volume, to be able to follow commands, to not have, I would listen very closely to make sure she didn't have wheezing. I would want to suction uh, both the endotracheal tube uh, and throughout her oropharynx to make sure there weren't excess secretions. But if all of that were true, uh, I would extubate her. So if she was wheezing, would you keep her intubated? I would treat, I would give her albuterol uh, and see if I could get her wheezing under control. If I could not, uh, and it was affecting her clinically, in other words, if she were wheezing and had high pressures, uh, in other words, she could not take uh, adequate tidal volumes on minimal support, like a pressure support of five, then I would keep her intubated. So if you kept her intubated postoperatively, how would you set the ventilator settings? If she was awake and able to trigger the ventilator on her own, I would put her on a pressure support mode of ventilation, which is usually the most comfortable for patients. I would start her on a pressure support of 5 and a PEEP of 5 and see how uh, adequately that was maintaining her tidal volumes. If she needed more support, I would do that. And if she was not able to support herself or was requiring large amounts of pressure, I would put her on a mandatory mode such as SIMV or volume control or pressure control. At extubation, the pulmonologist recommends no supplemental oxygen in order to avoid respiratory depression. Do you agree with that? I would not avoid oxygen uh, a priori. I would want to see what her saturations were. My goal saturation for this patient would be somewhere around 88 to 92 percent. Given her COPD, I would not want to push her up to saturations of 100%. There would be no advantage to that. But if she were hypoxemic, if her SATs were below 88, I would use supplemental oxygen only to get her up to that window of 88 to 92%. Okay, thank you, Dr. Mulpa. Thank you. Great. So that's the end of the exam. I made it. It's a little uh, nerve-wracking there, but uh, these guys took it, took it, uh, treated me reasonably well. All right, so let me give you uh, both a chance to make any comments on things that I did that, or, or things that you did as an examiner that you think people should know about. So uh, I thought you did well on the exam. Uh, you gave answers that uh, with evidence of why you were making the decisions you were, and yet you were also flexible with seeing uh, both sides of um, the situation. Another thing that uh, you emphasize is discussion with an evaluation with the patient, the family, the surgeons, because even though we are consultants, we do work with many other professionals as well as taking care of the patient. So it's vital to do a thorough exam as well as communication with um, all people involved. 
um, for example, one of the things that uh, I could have asked in the beginning was if you continue or discontinue any medications. At that point, if you were considering a rapid sequence induction and intubation, you could say a medication I would consider giving is Bicitra, H2 blockers, or Reglan. And that, uh, even though the question doesn't ask specifically about those medications, it does give the examiner a sense that you're thinking ahead of uh, the questions. But overall, very, very good. You, you, uh, also stated that there were some guidelines to some of your decisions, but did not uh, go into detail, at least the detail that you weren't aware of, but you did say that uh, there were some out there and that you would look at more details to manage your patient. Yeah. And, and far better to do that than to just make stuff up. That's, that's the kiss of death. Right. Yes. Um, so if you don't know, uh, you can certainly say uh, you would look something up or you would speak to a colleague who's more experienced, but at this time you don't recall. And that and that should reflect what you would normally do in real life, and I hope that's really what you would do. Um, so and personally speaking, I had to walk something back on my exam, um, and it, it worked out okay. So it is possible. You've you got to do it in the right way. Right. I, I agree. And the other thing is if you do catch yourself having made a mistake, uh, especially if it's early on, you got to let it go. Um, you can certainly try to walk it back or point out that you would change it, but um, you can't harp. You, you don't want to kind of harp on it in your own head, or you'll screw up the rest of your exam. So, uh, I, for example, on my actual oral boards, had a kid uh, who had been on high dose steroids before um, his asthma, and then was in a car crash. And I wrote down on my notes, I said, "Stress dose steroids, don't forget." And of course, I completely forgot. Uh, when they when he got hypotensive and they asked me what I would do, I forgot. And then about three minutes later, I remembered. But at that point, they had moved on to totally other questions, so I couldn't say anything. And it, I had to just let that go. If I had thought in my head, "Oh, I screwed up. I'm not going to pass," then that would have you know made me unlikely to do well for the rest of it. And of course, I I did fine and I passed. So it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to um, miss some things and and that you may maybe you should have gotten. But you do need to be able to continue and do the best you can for the rest of the exam. Yeah. And I think you'll notice that there was a – so there's two of us giving you the exam this time, um, which is reality. That's re- really what people will experience. Um, and examiners have different styles. So some people will be a little more short and just ask you the questions and move on. Other people will push you a little bit, um, which is not always a bad thing. So um, one thing I tell people is if I, if I cut you off, it's usually because you've answered the question appropriately or at least you've kind of satisfied my curiosity and um, – I know you could go on and on, but I have to get you through the rest of this test, so I will I will cut you off and move on. Um, if I'm sort of languishing a, a little bit, it's because I want to hear more information or you haven't quite answered the question that was asked. Like if I asked you what would you do about it and you're telling me your differential but you don't ever come to a, a decision, I'd come back to that. But um, So we try to have two different styles of examiners today. Um, and so I, I don't know if you felt that way, but I, I certainly was trying to cut you off because uh, to that point you were doing exceptionally well. So um, in the back of my mind, I'm like, this guy knows who he's talking about. Um, I'm going to just push him a little bit and just try to move through this a little bit faster. Yeah. And you felt that Absolutely. I've, you, you cut me off a few times. Definitely you were pushing me a little more than, than Tina was, and I think that's a great example of how you can have two different examiners with two different styles. Or on any given day, your friend might – 
be down at rally with you and they may he or she may have examiners who are much more laid back and you may have some that are a little more abrupt uh, but i agree getting cut off is not a bad thing necessarily and you, sh- you definitely can't let it fluster you in fact sometimes they may be doing it just to see how you handle it right right and, and that's a matter of i think their personality and yours and if they feel like you're you're giving well-reasoned responses versus just knee-jerk reactions um but overall your responses were were crisp they were clear um even when you were faced with an equally valid possibility, you still said, well, I would not necessarily do that because, uh, and that's the way you want to approach this, um, not just sort of reflexive responses. Good. Well, hopefully I would have passed uh, and, and haven't lost it all in the uh, years since I've taken it. Thank you both very much for uh, coming in and doing this. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so now that is the end of both parts one and two of this most recent oral board review. So check out the website, com. You can leave a comment. Let us know, how's your oral board review going? Do you find these useful? Are there other things that you'd like to see? We've actually thought we might change the format up a little, and we'll see, you'll see. We'll do another one uh, at some point in the future. Um, all right. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, check out the website, as I said. You can leave a comment. You can get a hold of me, ACRAC at ACRAC.com. You can also uh, go to iTunes if you're a fan of the show and leave a comment and a rating. That'll help other people find the show if they're looking for an anesthesia podcast. And if you want to help support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. And even if it's just a dollar or two you give, it really makes a big difference and helps support us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you're taking the oral board exam soon, good luck down there. I hope it all goes really well for you. For the ACRAC podcast and Drs. Tran and Beaudry, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember... What you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.